Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mace, and you're inside another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get the ongoings of the music industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here. Right now with me, I have a singer that's been putting in work since the mid-80s. You know her from hits yeah. such as Don't Make Me Over, Walk On By, The Love I Lost, and many more. I'm talking about the one, the only, the lovely, Sybil. Sybil, thank you for coming on to the podcast. Ah, uh, ah, uh, it's good to be here. It's good to be here. I'm excited that I'm feeling the number and able to do what it is I love to do. <laughs> right. That's all yeah. we can ask for. So go ahead and get it started. Where did your love of music come from and how did you end up getting signed to Next Plateau? Gosh, my love of music came at an early age. I grew up in a family of singers. It's ironic because my cousin, Maxine, was an original member of the group Invogue. One of my other cousins was the lead singer, original lead singer for Pieces of a Dream. And so on certain sides of family, you know, you have gifts and talents that are going to spread out and there's things that family members can do and you sit and think, wait a minute, why why is it all of us singing and why is it all of us can do this and all, all of us can do that? But I so a love of music was kind of established in my household early, early on. And so I would listen to not only would I listen to gospel, I'd listen to jazz and I'd listen to of course soul and some of the more contemporary pop stuff at that time. But I grew up in a house around by music and then I was close to the city where there was theater, Broadway. And so music has always been a part of my household, been a part of my makeup and a part of the gatherings. And if you you know old school back in the day you would have gatherings and it was always music and that's why the songs of yesteryear are the songs that a lot of us remember because as children we would hear our parents play them and, and kind of dance and, and, and do their thing to them and um and, and we would be there as family units and, and hear and have those experience musical experiences so I've um it started for me early on then of course I sang at a, a church in Patterson New Jersey called St. Louis Baptist Church and grew up singing in the church and graduated from high school went away to college and started singing at A&T in the gospel choir so there are a lot of uh, bases touch points for me as it relates to music and my musical lineage and how I evolved because I think it was at A&T where I kind of really embraced the idea of gospel music. I mean, I'd hear it. I sung it as a young as a younger person, but it was not until college that I really understood the connection between singing songs, you know, singing gospel songs and what that how that needed to be delivered and the importance as it related to our relationships with God. And so, and along the way, just kind of touched, been involved with some jazz artists and musicians and so music started for me early and it continues to be an integral part of what I do. And, right. Oh, in terms of in terms of okay, let me say this. Okay, you did ask about how I got signed to Next Plateau. Well, because I was in musical theater in high school, and I ran into after I graduated college and was working as an editor and a proofreader for a publishing company. A friend of mine said, "Hey, are you still singing?" And I said, "Yeah, I sing. Yeah, yeah." And he said, "I want you to meet this producer." But honestly, I was not interested in the least of being in the music business. Just was not interested. It was not what I wanted to do. It was not where I saw myself because I wanted to be an attorney. I thought I was going to be in law school <laughs> and, and be an attorney. Well, I ended up getting tricked into going to a studio under the pretense that I was going to be writing for a girl group because my strengths to me were as, as a writer. And it's ironic, I, I'm known for covers, but I'm a, actually a strong writer. And uh, and so I went down there thinking I was going to write for a girl group and the producer at the time, James Bratton and uh, Joe Maggio, said, let me hear let me hear you. And I said, why do I need to sing? And they were like, uh, they looked over at my friend at the time, Michael, and he said, he said I had to trick her to come down here. She wasn't going to come if it was about her singing anything. And so needless to say, they put me on the spot and they said, um, well, you must not be able to sing. And I looked at them like a sister girl would, 
snapped back. I'm like, excuse me? And I said, let me hear the song. Let me see the lyric. And literally within one take, one take after hearing it, I listened to it a couple times. And one take, I literally recorded my first record that was signed to Next Plateau. I called Falling in Love. Wow. And with, uh, you stated that your cousin is Maxine from In Vogue. Did you kind of have an yes. inkling when she was going to go audition for the group that was being put together by Foster and McElroy and seeing them change the face of 90s R&B and girl groups, period? Well, the funny thing, she was part of the founding group because they were all in the Western Oakland area, and that's where she was. She was actually born and raised in New Jersey, and then moved when she became a teenager. She, they moved out to California. But we saw the writing. She, I remember her sharing with me. She'd come to a show of mine, actually, and I remember her sharing with me about what was going on. And it's funny because her side, her brothers, all of, all of them sang. I mean, her dad, who was deacon at our church, and my uncle, they all sang. They were deacons that sang in the church. And so when I saw the writing on the wall in that, I knew, like I said, our family was music was, was an integral part of our family. It was just, we sang in church, we sang together in group, we sang at houses, we just, that was what we did. My mother sang, my aunt sang. I mean, they were part of a little girl group years ago, and so I saw the writing on the wall, and I was excited about how the face of R&B, they changed the face of R&B slash pop, because they became popular. When you cross over into the top 100, you become more than just R&B. And actually, let me say this, she and I will be working, she's got a solo project, a book coming out, and she and I will be working on some stuff for her, and so I'm excited about that. All right, we're definitely looking forward to that in vogue their place in r&b pop history for girl groups cannot be underestimated and you mentioned you went to ant i went to university of north carolina at greensboro which is okay. right down the street off of market right Martin Pride, whoop, whoop. and by you being signed to next plateau did you run into salt and pepper anytime because there were also label mates <laughs> signed to next plateau yes of course and we actually did work together uh, i actually worked on their award-winning album the black magic album i did a song called independent and i did that actually with with Cheryl Salt, uh, and who actually produced and, and helped with arrangement on that particular song. Uh, so we were label mates, yes. And then on top of that, they did the rap part on a song that I did called Crazy For You. And so basically, we, we scratched each other's back. We were label mates. And the irony of it is that I think that we consider ourselves friends. I was ahead of them. But I'll never forget, we were doing a fundraiser in Texas for Texas Children's Hospital. And I was in the mall. And they were sitting, Cheryl and, and Sandy, you know, Saul and Peppa, they were in a restaurant. And someone walked by, and Cheryl jumped up. She comes running out. And she's like, what are you doing? I said, I'm, going, I'm getting ready to go over at that time. I think I was going into the Joan and David store in um, in Houston. <laughs> so I, I ended up hooking up with them. And I'll never forget what she said to me. It's funny. When, when they started in the industry, I had been in it. And she said, Sybil, she said, you know what? I was talking about how you were the same. When we first met you, you were you were loving and embracing of us. And, and the same where you were in the beginning was how you treated us. And he said, if anybody ever said, Cheryl in particular, Salt said, if anybody ever said anything uh, bad about you, she said, we'd have to fight. She said, because I know they don't know you. And that is a testament to how I think the importance of being a certain type of person and so um, I was just raised a certain kind of way and I never ever thought that I, I was fortunate to have been doing what I do and uh, have done what I've done but it also is about the person the character of who I am is important to me and it's always been important to me yes we would run into each other we would do things together and I support them in all of their effort and those things have changed and people take on roles that may be contrary to who they were when I first met them it doesn't negate the fact that we have, est have established a relationship mm -hmm. and so you're starting to next so you were also signed to Champion Records out over in the UK and your debut mm -hmm. album Letting Yourself Go came out in 87 so what was it like that first time for you going over to the UK 
UK and kind of seeing how Urban X were marketed over there as compared to Urban X here in America? Well, the thing is, is that they weren't considered Urban X. It was just, you were an artist. What I loved about the difference between the UK and the US, in the US, there's, there's this need to be compartmentalized. And that has always been a problem to me because my thing, good music should not be bound by being relegated to a specific genre, so to speak. And I say that because what I found was that if you were a black artist, automatically they put you with R&B, even though your song might have been really have pure pop leanings, but because of the color of your skin uh, and the nature of where your record may have started, they, they relegate you to a specific chart. The UK was not like that. What I found when I went to the UK and, went, and, and I loved is that everyone had an opportunity to have access to the top 100 or the top 40 because BBC Radio, that one radio station for the whole country. So you would hear Bob Marley, then you would turn around and you would hear Charlie Pride, or you might, you would hear hip-hop, and then you would have that mixed up with a, with a classical piece, Babuccelli. It, it just depends. And so for me, I loved the experience of having exposure. And so it also made me understand why artists, why people that didn't look like me love soul music in the UK because they had received it. They would hear it. Unlike how it was here, like we were tuned in, we tuned in the black stations and that's what we listened to. There, you just got a real microcosm of all types of music. And so it was different for me because I found myself performing before audiences that were not of color. They were young, white kids, middle-aged, old school loving, you know, folks who just happened to love soul house dance music and so it was eye-opening and it was so cathartic for me and then now i've seen a change i've seen it kind of back into the uk us from the uk but that was the big thing for me the wake-up call for me was that music does not have to be relegated to a specific genre um in order to be successful in order for you to be successful and and also the america is not the only hot spot you can make money sell records you can work and i still work i work outside of the united states more than i ever work in the u.s and that is really unfortunate but that's my reality right and what was shocking for me was looking at a documentary on how urban music prior to 1990 was only on underground radio over in the UK and the UK really didn't get their first commercial urban station until 1990 with the launch of Kiss FM and you also did... Yeah, I know my stuff, and yeah. you also did Top yeah. of the Pop. So compared yeah. to me, what was it like going on Top of the Pop as opposed to doing like Soul Train or Apollo over here in your work with Stock, Aiken, and Waterman? You know, it's so funny because Top of the Pops was like American Bandstand or Soul Train. It, that's what it was like, and it was a big, big deal. And so when you made it Top of the Pops, you were at the top. You were on the top of the pop chart, and so it was no different. Say this: when I went on Soul Train, I was because as a little girl, you know, as a young person, I watched that growing up and it was just like I never ever imagined that I would be on that stage at any time it just it was unfathomable to me that the concept of, of this, this little girl from Patterson New Jersey with, who hung out in Enfield North Carolina in the summer would be on a stage in LA uh, in front of millions of people so it was great for me because of the exposure and at the same time it was just like it was humbling because you know I thought wow it was humbling uh, I realized then that um, and, I, and I will say this that God had given me places he placed me you know on stages and in places for his gifts to be seen and I hadn't planned on it and had I had anything to do with it I probably would never done it so my movement and my placement were there was, there's a reason for it and because of the top of the pop there's footage that I was there because of all the footage that I was there and so it leaves a mark and an imprint on the world and, on, and for my family and the young people who look up to me and I support and they're part of my life and they're like and it means a lot to me it was great fun I enjoyed doing it and I've done some other shows of course in the UK God of Disney you know top of the pop and so for me 
having access to uh, the visual part of it because, to be honest with you, I grew up at a time when the first three records that I did, I, there was never, I didn't do a video for them at all. But I had big hits in the clubs and underground things. It was not until Don't Make Me Over that a video was done. So people didn't even know what I looked like. And that was another thing, is that people didn't know if I was black or white over in the UK. They had no clue because all they heard was the music and they just liked the music. And so my audience was asked and it was varied and it was, it was, and it was just very diverse. And so it was pretty, it was cool. It was cool and exciting. Right. And for those of you that don't know, Top of the Pop, a well-loved British institution aired on the BBC for over four decades. It's still coming on the air only as a Christmas special. And yeah. Sock Aiken and Waterman, they're known for their hit on Kylie Minogue, Rick Ashley, Princess, yeah. Mel and Kim. Yeah. And they are huge. And Pete Waterman was a judge on a little show that came over here to America, <laughs> but the original British version, Pop Idol. Exactly. That's right. It's so funny because Sock Aiken and Waterman were like the Gamble and Huff, Burt Backrack and Hal David of the UK. They were the writers. They were the go-tos. And, and they made a lot of it. And Donna Summer can be factored in, too, as one of their. I absolutely love Donna Summer. Love her. So I actually aspired to be like her because of the nature of how she crossed over to various genres. Yeah. Right. So who idea was it for you to cover the Burt Baccarat, How David Classic for Dion Ward, Don't Make Me Over? That was actually Eddie O'Loughlin, who was the president of Nick Lateau at the time. He, I actually had done Walk On By. <laughs> I'd recorded Walk On By. And for some reason, and he was adamant about Don't Make Me Over. And I was like, ugh. And I did it. And it was not my favorite. It was just not. It was not until it was given into the hands of a little a young soul kid, white kid out of Liverpool named Tony King, who went in and gave it the soul to soul kind of vibe because he was had been working with Jazzy and the crew from Soul to Soul, that production group, and he knew them. And I had heard that I'd heard their song prior to them becoming big hits around the world. And I said, This is what I need to have. And that's what he gave me. So the remix made me love the song. Because originally I was like, uh huh, you know, it was huge, it was pretty, but it wasn't what I wanted to do, especially after coming out from under house records, you know, and, and dance records. I thought, this is just too far to the other side. And so, yeah, so it was actually the label idea with my nudging to have it remixed so that it would be in line with what was happening at the time. Right, and a good idea was it was a hit <laughs> across the Atlantic. And how yeah. did it make you feel knowing that Clark Kent sampled that for Spread My Wings remake for Truth? Clark, Clark, Clark was my boy. I, let me say this. He was a, a supporter of my music, actually, before Don't Make Me Over. Because I was a big, I worked a lot in New York. It's about falling in love, let yourself go, my love is guaranteed. Those were big club records for me, and so I worked at pretty much all of the clubs that were anything. I worked at it between the tri-state area, so New York, New Jersey, and even up to Connecticut, Massachusetts. The whole Northeast Corridor was my friend, let me say that. And so Clark Kent uh, was a big supporter of mine prior to him even sampling it, so I was actually really, really pleased. And, and so people, and another thing, is the funny thing, is that it was Jimmy Jam and Terry Lewis used I Adore You, my boy, on the record I Adore You that they did with Karen Wheeler for the Mo Money soundtrack. Hmm. I did not know yeah. that. I always thought that was Karen Willis' vocals, but now I know that it is your voice that they sampled for that cut off of Mo Money, yeah. because when I yeah. first saw the video for Spread My yeah. Wings and heard that breakdown, that like, don't you? I was like, hold up, is that simple? Is that simple right there? And knowing me, I'm yeah. a big troop head, so I was just yeah. extra hyped just seeing them get it with your vocal yeah. being added into the breakdown <laughs> section. I thought that was a great record. I thought, you know, you have a record and you're like, oh gosh, I wish I had been part of that record. That was a great record, and I was appreciative that Clark Kent thought enough of me to sample it. And um, like I said, it's just, I had been in places and been embedded in songs, and people were like, oh, was that you? As a matter of fact, the funny thing is that when somebody said, did you sing, they'll ask me, you sang on that troop record, didn't you? I'm like, no, it was sampled. You sang on that I Adore You with Karen Willow. I'm like, no, I just, they just, they just I adore you from the Don't Make Me Over song. That was it. So I laughed and I said to Jimmy Hammond and Terry Lewis years later, I thought, I said, why didn't you all just ask me to sing the song? <laughs> 
But I love right. Karen Wheeler. She's a sweetheart. She, she really is. Right. And one of the interesting things about the Spread My Wings remix that Clark Kent did was, I believe he, outside of Herbie Lovebug, used a lot of go-go in that record with the little drum breakdown. And it was kind yeah. of unheard of because go-go was still considered a regional sound. Pretty much, if you won't hear it unless you're DMV or maybe a little bit in North Carolina because you have a lot okay. of transplant from that area going to college. That's right. That's right. ACCU is very important. you to go-go. Period. Bottom line, you know, and if you have family that was from that area, <laughs> you, you just, I mean, it is what it is. You are absolutely right. Absolutely right. 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 And then I just found out recently, too, that Chuck Brown was born in my neck of the woods in North Carolina in Gaston before he ended up moving and getting raised in D.C. So a little bit of North Carolina connection with the guy of Go-Go. Now, in oh, 1993, you released a Civilization album. Was it the record label's idea again for you to cover the Gamble and Huff classic, The Love I Lost by Harold Melvin? Or was it yours? That was mutual. I actually love that song. I've always loved that song. And to be honest with you, I had done enough covers, and there were artists that didn't look like me, or writers that didn't look like me, who were making a lot of money off of my voice. And I grew up. The sound of Philadelphia was a big deal. I mean, I grew up listening to a lot of the stuff that came out of that out of that city. And Gamble and Huff were the premier writers, and I was excited to be able to do a song, um, to do one of their songs. And that one made the most sense for me because of the fact number one, it was already a, a disco dance record, and what we envisioned was exactly what we got. I, I wanted it. To, I wanted to stay kind of true to the original, but also give it a modern, a modern day spin. And I think we did a great job. That record is probably my biggest record. To be, people think don't make me over, but that record globally kind of changed the trajectory of how I was able to do business. In 1993, that song, then followed by subsequently by a stock exit. Well, it was that it was the Mike Stock and Waterman track uh, called um, called um, When I'm Getting Ready. That followed that. They were hit. I mean, they were talking at the same time in the UK. Never released here in the US. And everybody said that was the biggest mistake not to release Love I Lost in the US. But at least as a single. But it was actually a collective, to be honest with you. But it was a song that I was excited to be doing because of the fact that it was a gamble and how-to. So why wasn't it released here in the States? Was it because they feel that it wouldn't cross over where here in America and that the dance housing was really taking off in the UK, but didn't really have a strong foothold here in America? You know what? I'm not sure what their justification for it not being released here. There were some label changes and things that were going on. And I think that it was safe kind of relegating it to PWL, kind of managing it for the rest of the world and not encroach on the U.S., but at the same time, the U.S., it was, it was a different album. To be honest with you, we also did a different album. We did a, a Doing It Now album, and the single that was released here was a song, You're the Love of My Life, which was released at the same time in the U.S. So I don't know what their logic was other than there were some label changes going on and the uncertainty as to what would they thought would work and, and just not paying attention. I mean, not being funny, it would be great if every project that one does would be recognized and acknowledged for the body of work that it is, you know, and, and supported equally. But that didn't happen. What I came to understand is that I go and I, I go where I'm appreciated, where I'm loved, where I'm music, where I'm able to perform and present the songs of my heart without feeling as if it's a tour. And so I stayed and work in the UK off of that record and off of the song from that project because of the, the level of support I got, to be honest. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you mentioned that you did a U.S. and a U.K. only album, and that was mm-hmm. kind of the same strategy that later came to use when Backstreet Boys and NSYNC was breaking over in Europe, <laughs> where they would put out European versions of albums, but when they yeah. came back home to America, they would just change out a couple of songs in order to appeal to the U.S. market. That's right, and I guess that was a common practice, and I'm not sure if it's because the heads of these labels, a lot of them were not American from some of these larger labels. You had Europeans making decisions about what music was going to be heard and or listened to, and so I think that really kind of was where they 
might have been the changes in the album. They're like, no, we can't have these songs to work, but those won't. It was troubling, actually. At one point, it became troubling because I'd go to some territory and I'm like, I don't know which songs I'm supposed to be singing. <laughs> I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. And uh, it did kind of become kind of confusing at times, but I understood it. I did understand it. I didn't like it, but I understood it. Right, and I think the good thing for them was they were able to make their mistakes in Europe where we in America wouldn't see them. So that by the time they came back over here, they will already be well-oiled and polished. That's right. And you were huge over in the UK at the time where they had a group out called Bras, When Will I Be Famous, and the phenomenon known as Take That. So what was it like yeah. for you seeing that Take That phenomenon up close, knowing that they were the British equivalent of new kids on the block? Let me say, it was crazy. Actually, you might want to add the Spice Girls to that bunch, too. That was interesting. And I was there during that whole time. I said, they're not going to be that big. And little did I know, and all of those groups, Take That as well. And I mean, I actually did work with them on some of the shows, the arena shows, uh, because at that time I was big, too. <laughs> and so I was doing a lot of the major arenas and shows with them as a supporting artist. And so for me, it was great. It was to be part of the energy that was going on musically at the time. I laughed because like I said, I'm like, ah, they're not going to be, in my mind, they're not going to be that big. And they end up being massive. So little did I know. Look, I didn't know much, I guess. <laughs> but I was thinking from my perspective. But I guess also, too, that's why different albums, different territories. Because I was an American girl making an assessment about British audiences and British groups. And so, but it made things, you get it when you're up close and personal. And it worked. It catered to a specific audience and targeted specific groups. And it worked. Right. They were definitely huge. Back for Good was their only hit over here in America. They split in 95. And then Mm -hmm. you had acts like E-17. You had River Mm -hmm. Bay. You had Damage. You had M&A. So it was crowded among boy groups over in the UK. And five was huge over there. Very crowded. But I'm going to say that they were all different. Yeah, some of them were more soulful, you know, trying to do more like the Backstreet Boys. They were trying the more soulful Backstreet Boys sound, but also with new edition kind of leaning. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. They were trying. Some of them were trying that. They had some really cool, uh, some other groups that were underground that were great. Because, see, like you said, I went over there, and I, and I will say this, I started going over there when there were no soul, well, before Kiss, and they had what they called pirate radio station. I had no idea what that meant. But I used to do a lot of shows, and I said, I'm doing a show for this radio station. And people would be like, but they'd be packed because they would be pirate radio shows. And I had no idea what it was, but I was doing a lot of work. Right. And in Vogue connection with the UK, the girl group Eternal was created to yeah. be the UK's answer to In Vogue, and it had a big hit <laughs> over there and minor in the US with their Glenn Jones cover of Day. And then they cut Angel yeah. of Mine before Monica redid it and became an international smash. Yeah. Let me say, the thing is, is that they will try to copy us because they admire and respect us, and I wish that it was reciprocal, <laughs> a more reciprocal from areas. Yeah. Right, right. I agree, because mm-hmm. if you mm-hmm. can go down the line with all of the acts that came out of the UK, Boy George, George Michael, Phil Collins, Adele, mm-hmm. Sam Smith, they all idolized mm-hmm. US R&B and just put their own spin on it. Yeah, and we embrace, and the difference, and I will say this, and this is not about race, but it is, that we embrace black people, we as a culture or people embrace, if we like it, we don't care if you're green. It's not all, it doesn't translate the same, you know, the same everywhere. And so that can be taken any way it wants, but it's the truth. I mean, we knew who Wham was. We like Wham. We like George Michael. It doesn't matter the color of your skin. If your song, Rick Astley, never gonna give you up. People love that record. Lisa Sansil, been around the world. We just like the record. Black radio played those songs and supported right. those songs. You know, and right. so that's what I was thinking that was different, is that a black artist had the potential, at least in the UK, to be heard by people that didn't look like them. If you're dope, you're dope, because I posted a yeah, video right. just recently in a New Kids on the Block fan club group. It was a rare video of them performing at 
at a Boston nightclub for WILD before they yeah. blew up. And a lot of fans didn't know that new kids were marketed towards R&B consumers, R&B radio, and they did an right. original video of Please Don't Go Girl for BET. Yes, yes. To be up in Boston in that area a lot during that time, yes. So you kind of saw them before they had the pop phenomenon come behind oh, yeah. them and they were playing for pretty much the R&B crowd. That's right. That's the absolute truth. Because when I interviewed Danny, he was telling me that, you know, once the whole pop phenomenon came in, it was a little bit weird for some of the guys because, hey, we love R&B. We never mm -hmm. were intended to be a pop act, period. Mm -hmm. We just wanted they to want. just do what New Edition did, but it just so happened that white girls don't have a group. New Edition, Menudo, mm -hmm. Bing. Yeah. And that's where the money rolls in at. That's right. That's the truth. So for you, when was it time that you decided to leave Next Plateau? Was it more of where I just wanted to do my own thing, find another label, or go indie, or was it the label's decision? Yeah, well, the label folded. They were changed. They sold us off. As a matter of fact, they actually released Salt and Pepper and I to Polygram. So I didn't have a say-so in it. I was just released to a label. They had signed over everything to Polygram, and at that point, that's where I was. <laughs> so I had no say-so in the matter at all. So they sold They sold my record. They sold what I had done. And uh, now Universal actually oversees the catalog and the um, and the discography of everything that I have under Universal. Uh, we're looking at compiling, doing a compilation. Uh, we're in discussions now with the business side of the house to pull together a, a, kind of a number of songs from different albums, different projects that I've been involved with. And so we're going to see how that works out. Like I said, I still work. I, as a matter of fact, when I was actually going to be April, I was supposed to be in the Philippines. May, I was supposed to be in the UK. June, I was supposed to be in South Africa. And October, supposed to be in Brazil. So I still work. And I work off of songs, a catalog. I'm just appreciative of having the capacity to do those types of things. And on top of that, I'm actually an administrator. I'm in education. And so I work with young people who, who have a desire and aspire to be in this music industry. And but they just need to kind of get familiarity with some of the basics. Right. And the one thing about the music industry now with the rise of the internet is that everything is at your disposal. So a lot of younger mm -hmm. artists coming to the industry now are more aware of the business first, knowing point structure, royalty, yes. publishing. Mm -hmm. So how has that mm -hmm. changed from the time when you came in and you signed that first deal with Next Plateau, knowing what you know now about how the inner mechanics of the industry work? Let me say this. If I knew then what I know now, I would have my own label, um, but I would use the sources would be more, be the use of technology more. Um, because one of the things, the tangible, people don't necessarily need the tangibles anymore. They don't use that. I still like records, believe it or not. I still love having a record. I still love having CDs. I feel like having books, like physically having books. But that's because I'm old school. Understanding the dynamics of what's going on now, um, I would I would do things differently. I, I would actually have probably pursued more feverishly the concept of having an independent label. Actually, what's happening now is what happened in the mid-80s, where you had a, a bunch of independent labels because they understood that the big machine was not necessary to get their records played and or to get artists out on the road, period. So uh, it's just the use of technology has increased so you don't have the volume, uh, you don't have to make records. You don't have to burn any of that stuff, do that stuff anymore because it is streamed and it is purchased through technology. So it's different because there were monies there, but it's a different way to make the money now and it's greater, mm -hmm. potentially greater. It's easier and, and it's easier to, to make um, and greater for the individual, for the artist who decides to take it on. Right, because if you already have an established brand, you got buzz and a following, you could pretty much do it yourself. You only need the big names to really get that exposure if you're just coming into the game 
game because I had a recent interviewee tell me that he did a show with a famous writer who I'm not going to mention. He had one of his biggest hits get put on the streaming services and it got over 2 million streams, but the quarterly check from ASCAP was only for 6K. That's right. So yeah. that just tells me that the copyright laws needs to get reworked so that oh. writers and producers and singers can be fairly compensated because they didn't yeah, take and, into and account future, future platforms. Yeah. There's not a lot of money. It's not as difficult to get out, but it's a lot harder to get revenue out. Mm. And that's crazy. And, yeah, so yeah, I agree with you. Right. And then, of course, major labels have these 360 deals where they want to have their hands in all the pot. Not only we're going to take some of your publishing, we're only going to give you maybe two to three cents per record you sell, but we also want to get some of your merch money. That's right. I'm like, yeah. hands it's off. But you can see why Prince was fighting so hard for oh, doing yeah. it yourself in his scroll slave across the face. People thought he was crazy, but he was like, no, the system is pretty much rigged for the label to eat off of you. Everybody eats off your plate. You're the last one to get crumbs. That's right. Well, they want to give you the crumbs from the table, and you should be dining at the table. That is the problem. Yeah, then I think another thing why they were slow to adapt was when Napster came in, they all thought like, oh, people are still going to pay $20 for a CD or $15 for a tape. And it's it like, happens. no, I'm going to mm-hmm. sit with my 56K dial-up and wait two or three hours for these three or four songs to download so I can burn it off a of CD for free. That's right. <laughs> And that's the funny thing is, I don't know if you're young, but back in the day, what would happen is when you had the bootleg CDs made, I remember, I'll never forget, my brother walked up on someone down in Manhattan and asked him where he got these, where he had a bunch of simple stuff, a bunch of my stuff, my records, selling them. My brother went off, my oldest brother went off and took every bit of inventory that that guy had of mine. Because that was a big deal. They were selling, they were burning our stuff and recreating the cassettes and CDs. And it was like, really? It was crazy. They were eating. They were eating. Yeah, 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 I rem- yeah, I remember those days, I think it was Canal Street where you had everybody lined up with the blankets, with the cassettes and the CDs because a lot of people from down south have family from up north, so they would bring their Kid Capri, Ron G, Who Kid, Mixtape down south because everything came late. So we thought once we heard something from New York, we were like, oh, yeah. this is new. And then they look at us like, what are you talking about? This has been out months ago. Yeah, that's true. Right. So where did your desire going into education come from? You know what? I think it was always innately and intrinsically a part of who I am. I remember as a little girl, I used to get excited about writing on chalkboards and having my, my brothers and, and my cousins sitting around and writing stuff on a board and or on a pad. That was just something I've always loved to do. But what happened, I'm going to say for me, I was in, I started assisting, one of my mentors was a director of an adult education program, and she wanted me to oversee a class that was for those students who were very marginalized, but also very troubled. And I was like, I don't want to do that, but let me say, it's where I found my gift of ability to reach and teach. And so I stuck with it. I taught Highway to Success program for my former mentor, and I just loved it, absolutely loved it that became really interested in how I can make an investment into young people who have all but been dismissed by society and or have had trouble being able to get the credentials that they need to be able to have earn some fair living wages. And so it started early because education was always wished. I mean, I never remember not saying I was going to college. I never remember ever hearing my parents say, you're not going. It was always, I was going to college or the military. The military was not an option for me, you know. It just wasn't. So college was what I prepared for. And so learning, I've been a life long learner and I continue to believe that training and, and, and kind of immersing yourself in those things that are going on around you. For example, when I first got out of college, I was excited. We didn't use computers. I worked at a publishing company. All I had to do, I mean, I literally edited the material, handed it off to someone 
someone who handled the technical part of it. And it was in 2000 when I realized that I needed to learn how to use technology. And it, there, it, it worked in my favor. So early on, I realized that education could be something else for me when I thought that I was good at it. And that the results of those whose lives I was overseeing in terms of the classroom environment, learning environment, they were becoming successful. And so that kind of, I stayed in that. And I stayed in, in the area. What I do now uh, with the institution is basically I make sure that, that I help students connect the dots so that they don't separate from learning. Because the average adult learners in most of the community colleges, if they're the non-traditional learner, are 27 for the non-traditional students. You know, you don't have the traditionals, the one who comes straight out of high school. We have a lot of non-traditional students who are trying to acquire a credential so they can take care of their family and themselves. Right. And I can understand that. I was an educator myself for three years. I taught yes. special education for elementary mm-hmm. and middle school out here in New Mexico. And just in, you know, how it works on the inside, especially with kids that are special needs and knowing that we have to do a lot more to make sure that they're set up for success right. and then depending on where you are, you know, with me coming from rural northeastern North Carolina, and you know this by being in Enfield, that the options are limited and that success should not be determined, you know, by your zip code. You got to go for it. So that's why it's important mm-hmm. for those of us who have succeeded to reach and tell the next generation, like, hey, I came from the same environment you did. Dirt field, cotton field, peanut field, and all, and you can make it. <laughs> that's right. You can make that's it. Right. So, uh, that's so right. tell us about any future music projects that you got coming out and we can reset. It's like I told you, I'm working, I'm working with Maxine on her project. I've got actually, um, they're going to pull together some of my old and some of the hidden gems is what they're calling them, songs that I had actually done, had recorded that were never released as singles. And so that's in the work for the UK territory. My manager and I made a decision that we are going to put an independent project out. We were hoping, literally we were hoping that we'd be able to get it out before the end of the year. But with this coronavirus and everything that's going on, we're going to shoot it for 2021. And in the meantime, we have sent out the material, the song to be revisited, revamped, so that they don't sound old. And they're new, but they, we don't want them to sound old by the time they're released. I've worked on the United Way, on the Artists United to End Poverty Project, which I'm really excited about. And it's designed to raise funds and awareness for poverty, to increase people's awareness that, number one, poverty is real, it exists, and that we have to be intentional with our attempt to be able to eradicate that. And so I gave a song, and I lent my voice to the Artists United to End Poverty Project for United Way. So I do those types of things because they're important to me, and they are based on kind of the heart of who I am. I love working on behalf of the marginalized and disenfranchised population. And so me being a singer in my other life has afforded me access to some things that other people have not have access to. I mean, I go into South Africa, and I do that a couple times a year. And I will visit a school and work with instructors and students who come from the townships to be able to prepare them and train them for, I guess, a walk in this music business, so to speak. Uh, There's a lot of talent around the world. And one of the things I'm a firm believer to whom much is given, much is required. And so this is something that I've been gifted to do and as an educator I'm always thinking how can what I share what I do prepare them for something greater and or to open up their mind to see themselves beyond where they are and that's really ultimately what who I am right and be on the lookout for those upcoming projects now before we close do you have any shout outs you want to give and also plug your social media handle well it's so funny because I'm Sybil Sings on everything I'm Sybil Sings on Instagram on Twitter that's where I am I also um, actually you can look for stuff for me with www Dinoco, D-I-N-O-C-O entertainment.com uh, that's where touring what I'm doing will be shared and I have a public page of course on um, Facebook but I've got three Facebook pages one public page the other two are more personal and I just look for me look for me out there I go by Sybil Things I go by Sybil but on social media it's Sybil Things and um, and that's about it uh, but what I do want to say is I want to shout out my Aggies I love A&T I'm an Aggie 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 and we're not going to have a celebration of G-Ho as we call 
called the greatest homecoming on earth, but we're going to celebrate, and we're just going to pray that 2021, that those who we aren't, weren't able to see in 2020, will be able to see in 2021. And I'm going to give love to Barton to you and CG Barton down the road, too, because I have a lot of good friends, um, and they're doing a lot of great programming. And actually, they are one of the institutions that really have helped me transition some of my students from a two-year environment to a four-year environment. So I love my Aggies and love and respect the Bartons as well. And I love APCU, period. But most of all, I love the fact that God made me this way, and it is what it is. Right. And while we're on the subject of triad colleges, I want to shout out Greensboro College. I want to shout out Bennett. And I want to shout out Guilford College. Definitely don't want to leave you guys out. And remember, you can hear this episode along with past episodes on Anchor, Breaker, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, the one, the only, the lovely, the beautiful, Miss Sybil, right here on Beyond the Album Cover with yours truly, Jay May. Sybil, thank you once again for doing this interview. You're welcome, Jay. You take care of yourself. I hope to see you soon.